Father, we do thank you. Lord, we have just sung about, well, Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. By his stripes we are healed. Father, we have no standing before you whatsoever apart from Jesus Christ. And today, Father, as we get back into your word, as we look at the words of Christ May they dwell richly within us that we might be changed in our hearts and that we might live for you, for your glory, for the glory of your Son. May the truth resonate. May your glory resonate and radiate from us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved, at long last, open your Bible to the Gospel according to Luke. It's been a couple of months, but we return now to this account of the Life and Ministry of Jesus Christ, this book written as stated in the first few verses, so that those who love God might know the exact truth regarding the things they've been taught. We need to know exactly what the truth is about Jesus. And Luke is written for that reason, that we might know Christ. In fact, it was a man who influenced Luke greatly, the Apostle Paul, who in Philippians writes, he counts all things rubbish, next to knowing Christ and the power of His resurrection. And that is what we would do well to pursue ourselves. So let's do that this morning. We're in Luke 15. Luke 15 consists of three parables. The first two of those parables we looked at the last time we were in this book together. And today we'll be looking at the third. And the third is probably the most famous of all the things Jesus taught. Uh, parable-wise at least. The, the, the parable is commonly called the parable of the prodigal son. It is a very well-known story. That is to say that even unbelievers who rarely, if ever, pick up a Bible are at least somewhat familiar with this story. The term prodigal has become not just church language, but it is part of our cultural vernacular. That is how influential this story has been because it's compelling. This parable is, is, is memorable, it is detailed, it is simple, and yet it is also at the same time the most complex of Jesus' parables. There are so many emotions that we can identify with. The characters are painted in very colorful language. It's very vivid, and so we read this, and it's no surprise that people remember it so well. But I say that to say this, even so, it's probably the most misunderstood parable too. It's, it's probably, you know, while it's simple, it is also deep. While, while the religious leaders who would have heard it firsthand would have understood the story with no problem, they were blind and deaf to its meaning, to its spiritual meaning. And the same is, is largely true today. People often take this story and they, they, they take it out of its historical first century Near Eastern context and they bring it into today's world, and sometimes you'll see people try to assign meaning to every little detail within the story. And when you do that, much gets lost and much gets wrong. We begin to not be able to see the forest for all the trees that are assigned meaning. So we want to understand it rightly. And to understand it rightly, we've got to do our best to hear this parable, as we do all Scripture, the way Jesus' audience would have heard it. So let's make sure we are getting what the Holy Spirit wants us to get. Let's make sure, as, as much as we can, we hear what the Spirit says to Christ's church. We're going to take our time. 
you might have noticed in your bulletin it says part one. I, I suspect, I know we're not going to get through it all today. I suspect we won't get through it all next week. and It might take three or more weeks, but it's my prayer that however long this takes us, once we've gotten through verse 32 where it ends, that all of us will have a, 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 a be able to, when we think about the parable of the prodigal son, we'll be able to look at it with fresh eyes and with a fresh appreciation for what God has done for you and for me through His Son Jesus. Well, to get it right, we've got to set the context first. And, and so what's going on in Luke 15? What's the situation as Jesus tells this parable? Well, Jesus, again, remember He's on His way to Jerusalem. He spent a lot of His ministry, His early ministry up in Galilee, but now He's getting toward the end. We're about in, in the last six months of Jesus' ministry where He's in Judea, and He is winding through the towns and villages of Judea uh, on His way to Jerusalem, and, and He knows what's going to happen in Jerusalem. He's teaching along the way. He's performing miracles to, to show that His words are true, that, to show that He is who He says He is. And, and He is on His way to the cross, and He's going to be the, the, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's going to be the, the perfect sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice for all sin, for all time, for all who will ever believe. That, 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 that He is the Savior of the world. He's going to bear the Father's wrath against all that sin. And, and He knows He's going to die. He knows also, though, that He's going to rise again. That, that on the third day, the temple will be raised. Uh, that, that, that all found in Him might receive the gift of everlasting life. And so He knows this. He's on the way. And along the way, as He's teaching, He is repeatedly calling men and calling women to repentance. In every town he goes to, you got to repent. Luke 12, 14, you got to abandon worldly pursuits and you've got to follow the Lord. you got to trust in the Lord. For where your treasure is, Luke 12, 34, there your heart will be also. He's been saying, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. That's Luke 13, 24. And how about Luke 14? 26 and 27, if anyone comes to me, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That is not the kind of language that wins friends and influences people. But that's not what Jesus has been trying to do. He, he has been telling people what they don't want to hear. He's not about satisfying the listener. He's not about tickling the ears. He's not about making sure people walk away feeling good about themselves and wanting to come back. He knows that it's, it's in His Father's hand. It's in the Spirit's hand if they come back. He, he, he's been preaching the truth and He's been raising the bar about what it means to be His disciple. And He's leaving no doubt as to His expectations for those who will entrust themselves to Him. Those who will say, I am a Christian. Those who say, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. There's no doubt how high He continues to raise the bar. And, well, His expectations made enemies. The truth made enemies because when you preach the truth, it will always make enemies. When you preach the truth, it will always rub some people the wrong way. The truth offends our sinful sensibilities. 
And the truth offended the, the sensibilities of the religious establishment of Israel. And most notably, the scribes and the Pharisees we see at the beginning of Luke 15 who were listening to all this. Verse 2 tells us they were grumbling. And why were they grumbling? Why? Because Jesus dared to fellowship with tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors and sinners. The kind of people that the religious establishment did not want to be around. The kind they didn't want near them. The kind they didn't want to be near. They found them detestable. They found them to to be just dirty dogs. They belonged to the devil. And yet Jesus was a teacher and he's spending time with them. Jesus was comfortable with tax collectors and sinners, comfortable with the detested, and making the religious establishment very uncomfortable. The scribes and Pharisees were, were very influential among the people, but they were utterly corrupt. They were hypocritical to the core. They focused on appearing holy rather than being holy. They pretended humility rather than really humbling themselves. They professed themselves to be the protectors of God's Word, when in reality, Jesus says, you have nullified the Word of God for the sake of your traditions. They, 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 they subjugated the Word of God to the opinions of men, to their own opinions. They honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from Him. They hated Jesus because, what does it say in verse 2? This man receives sinners. They hated that. This man receives sinners. He met those in need of God instead of assuming the holiness and coddling those who looked the part on the outside. Okay? So Jesus, they hated him. He gave them parables. And first we saw the lost sheep. There's a shepherd so concerned about one in a hundred of his sheep that he goes out, he finds it, and he brings it back to safety, and he rejoices when he does so. Then we saw the lost coin, where this woman goes to great lengths to search her house under every nook and cranny to find a lost coin, and she finds it. And then what does she do? She throws a party that costs more than the coin was worth to show how much she is happy that she found the coin. And the, the parallel there is how God has given him his inestimable son for sinners like you and me. This man receives sinners, and there is joy when even one sinner repents. And that brings us now to this parable, which is the main parable, the main event of the evening, so to speak, in this series of teachings from the Lord. The the lost sheep, the lost coin, and now a lost son. And, And whereas repentance has been mentioned in the first two parables... It hasn't been defined. Here, we're going to see it defined. And again, we'll only scratch the surface, but let's take it all in. I saw a quote this week that said, The text is the best part of any sermon. So let's get to the best part of the sermon, which is the text. Luke 15, and I'm going to read 11 through 32. And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, Give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them, and not many days later the younger son gathered together everything and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. 
Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf Kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they began to celebrate. Now his older brother was in the field and when he came and approached the house and he heard music and dancing, he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound, but he became angry and was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. And But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. This is such a rich and layered parable. Characters we can understand, characters we can relate to. There's a father, an older son, and a younger son. And it's the younger son we'll focus on mainly this morning. Uh, The one known as the prodigal. That's a word, by the way, that we don't use much apart from this uh, parable. And most people, I suspect, think that the word prodigal refers to something being lost or something being returned. That's really not what the word means. It means spendthrift. Or to put it bluntly, it's one who is wasteful. It's one who is selfish, one who is self-indulgent, and that describes this younger son to a T. In verse 11, a certain man has two sons, and the younger says, Father, give me the share of the the estate that falls to me. He was asking for his share now of what he would one day inherit. That much we we understand. It, It was a shocking thing to say. Now understand that. This was a shocking thing for the younger son to do. A shocking, unconscionable thing for the younger son to say. And why? Why, why, why would he do this? Why, why would it be shocking to those scribes and Pharisees who were listening to this? Because theirs was a culture, and rightfully so, built on generational respect. Honor your father and mother is one of the Ten Commandments. And that actually was, 
was one of the commandments they, they actually took more seriously than others. Um, they could have talked about coveting and uh, not having idols in their hearts. But, but they did usually take the commandment to honor your father and mother seriously. Uh, so here's this younger son, and he wants his money essentially so that he can live his life the way he wants to live his life. So that he can be what he wants to be, do what he wants to do. And he does this, it's total disrespect. He's completely <coughs> thankless. He's completely ungrateful for what his father has built for what generations of his family have done. And, and when we consider the way ancient Near Eastern culture viewed respect for the Father, there's one pastor and commentator who hits it right on the head, and he equates the younger son to saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. You are in the way of my plans. You are a barrier. I want my freedom. I want my fulfillment. And I want out of this family now. I've got other plans, and they don't involve you. They don't involve this family. They don't involve this estate. They don't involve this village. I want nothing to do with any of you. I want my inheritance now. He's essentially saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. I, want, I wish you were dead so I could have what's coming to me now. And, and so the younger son was willingly choosing to cut ties with his family at this point, to treat them as dead to him. And he does this assuming that they're going to treat him as dead in return. He's making this choice consciously. And that's why it's so huge later in the parable when the father says, this son of mine was dead. This brother of yours was dead. The father is, is in the place of honor in the family. The older brother would come next. And so the last one in line here is deciding he wants to be first. And what have we seen Jesus say about those who want to be first? It's never a good thing. Last week in Third John, Diotrephes wanted to be first. It's never a good thing. But here is this younger son wanting to be first. And so Jesus really couldn't have picked a better illustration for his audience to depict shame. Because what the younger son is doing here is utterly shameful. It's a repudiation of everything that is right, of everything that is proper, of everything that is loving. That's the younger son bringing shame willingly upon himself, throwing off what he sees as shackles on his happiness to live as he sees fit. Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. He's asking for what we might call the inheritance. Now, funny enough, Jesus doesn't use the Greek word for inheritance here because when you inherit something, and those of you who have had to deal with estates know this, that requires some responsibility. That requires you to, to manage the assets that you are inheriting, especially if you're the executor of, a, of an estate. And so he does not want any of that. He does not want the responsibility. With, with, with the inheritance comes responsibility. He, he wants none of that. He's ungrateful. He, Jesus is using a phrase here then that essentially he's saying, give me my stuff. Give me what's coming to me. Give me mine. I want mine. Give me my stuff. And according to customs, that would be a third of everything. The older son would normally get a double portion of the inheritance so he'd get a third of everything. And when you consider the things we're reading about in this whole parable, this father had many possessions. He had servants. He had fattened calves. He had all kinds of things, robes, rings. He was a wealthy man, so this younger son would have had a lot coming to him. And still, 
it wasn't good enough for him to wait until it was the due time when his father died. He wants it now. And the expectation from the listeners, those hearing Jesus say this, the expectation is that such a request would anger the father to the point he would shame his son because after all, the son is shaming him. That he would disown his son just as his son is disowning him. That he would admit his son deserves no honor when his son is dishonoring him. And the scribes and Pharisees would have expected Jesus to say that that's what happened next. But look at verse 12. He goes ahead, the father does, and divides the wealth between them. The word for wealth, by the way, in Greek it's bios, which is, we get biology from that. Life, the study of life. What the, the point here is that the father was dividing his life among them. Dividing what the family for generations had obtained and cultivated and grown. So it's shocking that the father would go ahead and do this. That The request of the son is shocking. The father acquiescing to the request is even more shocking to the scribes and Pharisees. They can't believe the father is, is doing this. It's unconscionable. That's unconscionable. And they would have immediately, by the way, lost respect for the father for doing this, for giving his, his wealth, his bios, his life away. But isn't that a picture of the sinner in God? Isn't that a picture of a sovereign father, God, who's in control of all things, who Isaiah 46 declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done? Our God is in the heaven. Isn't this a picture of the one who does whatever he pleases? And yet there are, in his will, rebel sinners who take him for granted, who take his goodness for granted, who take his grace for granted, who take his word, what he's revealed, for granted, and end up demanding God give them what they want, when they want, how they want it. Isn't this a picture of human life? The prodigal son is the picture of a sinner who exists only because of God. God breathes into man the breath of life. The only reason any of us is breathing right now is because God. The sinner, though, can't see God for who He is. He can't appreciate God in His goodness. He can't appreciate and comprehend God's holiness. He has no concept of his dependence upon God. Despite everything God has done for him, the sinner still rejects God. So just like Romans 1.18-32 says, God gave him over. God gave him over. God gave them over. And here, you know, the father is giving over his son. Colossians 1.21, this sinner is alienated from the life of God. He is hostile in mind. He is engaged in evil deeds and... That's the younger, ungrateful son. And the father hears him ask what's coming to him, gives him over. And the sinner wastes little time acting on his sin. Verse 13, And not many days later, the son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And that phrase, gathered everything together, literally means he converted everything to cash. Okay? So, so everything that was part of his inheritance, he converted to currency that he could spend anywhere, and he did this almost immediately. And in, in ancient traditions, 
Yeah, that would have even amounted to selling off some of his father's property. Now, in ancient times, a son could do this even when the father was still alive. He could sell off his portion of, of, of an inheritance of land with the understanding the buyer would take possession of it when the father died. So he is selling off his father's land before his father's even dead. That's the thought here. Disrespecting his father in every way he possibly can on his way out the door. And now he's going to get as far away from his dad, his father, as he can. By the way, have you ever wondered, (laughs) where's the older brother in all this? Why aren't you, older brother, stepping up to defend the honor of your father? Where are you to confront your younger brother in his shame? Well, as we continue looking at this, I think we're going to see there's more to the older brother than we might realize at first glance. But, but this younger son, where does he go? He goes to a distant country, the point being he goes to Gentile lands. Remember, these are Jewish ears hearing this. Don't forget the context. These are Jewish ears hearing this. He goes to Gentile lands, something the scribes and Pharisees would not have missed. You don't, you, you, and that's just a wicked thing to do in the first place. It emphasizes the son's wickedness. He chooses to go to this defiled place. More shame upon his father that he would choose to go there instead of being with him. The scribes and Pharisees, you know, they were listening to Jesus. They could not have made up a more rebellious, obstinate, disrespectful son than what Jesus was saying here. And he goes, and, and what does the son do? In the distant country, he, quote, squandered his estate with loose living. He, he, he wasted all his stuff on loose living. He, he, that's where the term prodigal, he's, he's immoral, he's wasteful, he's inconsiderate. In fact, the, the older brother later, it's going to say he devoured his father's wealth on prostitutes. His own, he makes his own life a dumpster fire. He becomes like a tax collector, like the worst of the sinners that these Pharisees and scribes are so grumbling about, that they would never have anything to do with. And, and this is what he willingly does. And it feels good. Because sin so often feels good in the moment. Sin so often, uh, why is that? Because when we're sinning, we're satisfying our fleshly lust. When we're sinning in anger, it's because we want to be anger, angry and we feel like we're burning in anger towards someone and, and it makes us look better. When we're sinning with greed, it's because we want something more than what we should be doing with our money or, or whatever it is. Here, here. Sin feels good in the moment. It appeals to this guy's fleshly lust, but it never ends well. Sin might feel good in the moment, but it never ends well. Drunken living never ends well. Sexual immorality never ends well. Hating others, gossiping, bullying, whatever else, it never ends well. And so it was with the prodigal. Because a severe famine comes. Now, admittedly, he has nothing to do with the famine coming. But when you add his unwise living to a severe famine, he becomes impoverished. He can't take care of his own needs anymore. He thinks he was going to be self-sufficient. He thinks he's going to have his, you know, his life the way he wants to live it. But now he can't even feed himself. He begins to realize how impoverished he was, not just with regard to money, but with his heart. He squandered it all. He's destitute. So what do you do when you get desperate? 
Well, the first thing you do is you try to fix things yourself. And that's what the, the younger son tried to do. He's in this distant country, Gentile land. And instead of realizing what he needs to do, he stays where he is and he hires himself out. Now that phrase hired is very interesting. It literally means to glue or to join to. So the point is, he's not just going out and looking for a job. He's attaching himself. He's gluing himself to this distant country. Instead of repenting, instead of making things right, he figures the only way to save face in his shame is to become like a Gentile. And that's the point of verse 15. He hires himself out, he glues himself out, and was sent into the fields to feed swine. Now remember, these are Jewish ears hearing this. Jewish lips saying this, Jewish lips hearing this. Swine, pigs. You talk about another detail that would cause the scribes and Pharisees to recoil. A Jew feeding pigs. A Jew feeding pigs in Gentile land. A Jew feeding pigs in Gentile land in service to a Gentile. He's prohibited by the law of Moses, the Old Testament, from eating pork. But now he's feeding pork. It could not possibly get worse than this. Except it did. He can't afford to eat. Even feeding pigs isn't paying him enough to meet his most basic needs. He sees these pigs and he gets to his most desperate point as he starts wishing he was them because at least their stomachs are filled with the pods he's feeding them. He's willing to eat their food. No one's giving him anything. Well, we're just a few verses into this parable and already the sensibilities of the self-thought holy scribes and Pharisees are offended beyond belief. They would not have been able to comprehend such a, a story being reality. They, they couldn't even imagine one of the tax collectors and sinners Jesus hung, hung around getting this low, getting, getting this shameful, getting this desperate, much less a Jewish man. Yet here's this prodigal son, this wasteful, self-indulgent son who'd willingly, even eagerly, separated himself from his father, thinking his life on his own, away from his father, would be better. And here's the thing that each of us needs to realize this morning. This is a picture of us. This is a picture of, of you, and this is a picture of me. This is our story. This is not out there. This is not outlandish in the sense it's unusual. It's only outlandish in that this is us. We are the sinner. This is a picture of one who, by nature, Ephesians 2 says, is a child of wrath, a son of disobedience, dead in his trespasses and his sins. This is the one who has enmity toward God, denies God, hates God. Maybe he doesn't say it out loud. But he hates God in his heart. He lives for himself. He, he lives for herself if you're a woman. He, he loves himself, loves herself above God. This is one who is self-indulgent. This is the one who wants what he wants. Wants what she wants. This is the one who tries to, to fix his own problem in a number of ways. Rather it be money or sex or, or security, a promotion. Rather it be... Uh, 
taking other people down, whether it be divorce and remarriage, and divorce again and remarriage again. But not just these things. This is the one who values his or her own opinions, his or her own preferences above the Word of God. Above the Lordship of Christ. This is the one who says, I'm going to be the king of my life, not God. Not His Son, Jesus Christ. And it's to our shame. It's to our shame. This is the condition of anyone and everyone who is separated from their father. God the Father. The younger son gets as shameful as possible before... uh, something happens that will change things. Now, we'll get to that, God willing, next week. But before we pray, don't leave here with that shame. Don't leave here with that shame because as we're going to see in the story, God has done something to rectify the problem. The, The prodigal son tries to save himself, tries to fix things himself, and it only makes things worse. And there are many people who fancy themselves religious or irreligious. They go to church, they don't go to church, but they're trying to do something to be right, to be okay, to be safe. And they're only making things worse if they're not submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ, who says, repent and believe in the gospel. God sent His Son... The Son went to the cross. We are forgiven of our sins if we trust in Him, if we repent and believe in Him. We are, he raised from the dead. We are given everlasting life. The, son hasn't real, the younger son hasn't realized this yet in the story. Next week we'll see more. Until then, where do you stand with regards to your sin? Where do you stand with regards to your shame? Are you still living in it? Or have you turned the corner in the story according to what God has done? Let's pray. Father, we are just beginning to work our way through this. This parable is so familiar and yet it is so misunderstood. And we pray that you will give us ears to hear. We pray that you will make it abundantly clear to us that a life separated from you, a life divorced from our Father is no life at all. Life not submitted to the Lordship of Your Son is no life at all. And so, Father, I pray for anyone and everyone here that Your Holy Spirit might convict us and enable us to repent and follow more zealously Your Son, Jesus Christ. Do not, Father, I pray You won't let us depart with hearts that have not been searched, that we would not walk out the doors living like the prodigal thinking like the prodigal, ungrateful, wasteful life, still sinning like the prodigal. Father, please grant to your people the gift of repentance. May those whom you have called see the sacrifice of Christ, your Son, and trust in His finished work on behalf of everyone He saves and walk in the newness of life that's guaranteed by His resurrection. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.